Welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a WCCM podcast from Bonvaux, a center for peace. I am Elba Rodriguez. In this episode, Roshi Kennedy guides us through a practical understanding of Zen and the importance of interreligious dialogue in a world of pluralism. This talk was part of an evening event at the Meditatio Center in London. Robert Kennedy is a Jesuit priest and a Zen master. He is the founding teacher of Morningstar Zendo in New Jersey. Well, it's a pleasure to be in England again, see some old friends. Zen is about uh, sitting, it's sitting meditation and the uh, community effort to do this together, that it brings us joy and profit and uh, we are happy to share it with you. When Zen people get together, they also uh, chant a lot. And uh, we'll do a little chanting also. And uh, then I have some slides to show you that uh, explain some aspect of Zen life. And I hope you have uh, questions to ask. Ask one another, ask me or one another. Think of this as a conversation. And what I really like you to do is to be comfortable. Um, it's best that you have nothing in your lap or nothing to uh, inconvenience you, you know. You can put it under your chair so that you uh, can relax. But So let's begin by sitting. We will sit periodically through this. We have two hours. It's a long time. We can take a break if we want. And uh, we'll sit, let's say, for 10 or 15 minutes and then uh, speak a bit and uh, maybe chant a bit. And uh, the time will go quickly and I hope profitably. So let's begin and sit for a few minutes. The bell is important. <laughs> really says everything that we need to know about Zen. It is a pleasing sound that calls us to attention and teaches nothing. It just brings you to uh, yourself and to uh, live your own life with joy and profit. Normally, with a bell will ring three times to bring you into a meditation, and uh, once or twice to end the meditation. It's 20 to uh, 7 now. So suppose just as an introductory sitting, we sit for 10 minutes. Most of you know what to do, and you know how to do it. You've done this before. Sit straight in the chair, comfortably but straight. <coughs> Rest your hands on your thighs. It is better if you keep your eyes open 
but few do. They like to close their eyes, but uh, it's better uh, if they are open. And pay attention to the breath as it comes in and out. Breath in and breath out. I haven't been able to decide which is more important. Should, breathing should be a pleasure when you pay attention to it. It's not only life-giving, but uh, enjoyable. In a Zen group, an experienced Zen group, of course, during a talk, people sit perfectly still. They hold a sitting posture throughout, throughout the hour, throughout the day. Slouching would be uh, not the thing to do. It's almost unnerving the first time you meet a Zen group. All these people and uh, there's no movement and they sit perfectly still. This is the shrine of St. Teresa in Avila in Spain. She was, well, she was a great mystic in her lifetime and has been revered down through the centuries uh, by all Christendom. And I think the artist did a wonderful job in catching her spirit that this is a house without a roof, and the house without walls so that life can blow right through it without hindrance. There is a structure. We have a body. And yet, Teresa was perfectly open to life, to environment, to learning, and to paying attention. Now, this has been presented so that we would be encouraged to sit this way. There is a structure here that we have, you know, a, a zendo and the chairs and the sitting. But try to sit so there is just breathing, just life coming through you without us trying to define it or shape it. It's not a time to make great life decisions. It's just a time to breathe and uh, step away from the ideas that have shaped us. Is it possible to step away from the ideas that have shaped us? Maybe not. Maybe not. But some people try and have some success. I was in West Hartford, Connecticut, uh, at a retreat house there, and uh, they had a, an art gallery on the main floor. And when I walked in and I saw this, I thought, this is wonderful. This is a koan in the uh, transmission of light by an Indian patriarch. He said, the roof gone, house demolished. That was his teaching. It was the same thing as the uh, shrine of St. Teresa. 
it's just differently, a different artist, a different conception. He said, don't make Zen into a, an idea or a system of thought or a philosophy, if you can help it. We do that with everything, and Zen is urging us to take a step back. Stop it. Just breathe. Don't think yes or no. Don't think good or bad. Let it go. Let it go. Anyway, some people in the group heard me say that I, I liked it, it was important, and uh, the group went out and bought it for me. So it's hanging up in my zendo now. I never thought it would be there, but there it is, right next to the breakfast table. And uh, somehow I think it's quite perfect. It tried to be perfect, do things right, proper. Then it's just life, which is none of these things. It's like a storm. And our efforts to shape it uh, often uh, hurt us rather than help us. I show this picture because this Japanese Zen master uh, touched me very deeply. I had been a Jesuit priest for many years when I met him. And when I did meet him, I felt that this is really what I was looking for. It wasn't Buddhism particularly, it was this man who radiated life in every part of his body. He's a married man with children and grandchildren, and uh, priests and nuns from all over the country, Buddhist nuns, priests, Christian people, uh, came to uh, sit with him to learn from him. And he told me in our first meeting, he said, uh, I know who you are and what you want. His son had gone to one of our Jesuit high schools in Japan. So he was well aware of what Catholics are and Jesuits are, Christians are. And he said, I do not want to make you a Buddhist. I want to empty you an imitation of your Lord Jesus Christ who emptied himself and poured himself out. And this was liberating. It meant I could do Zen and do it straight. I don't think there's anything like Christian Zen, just like there's no Christian physics or Christian chemistry. I mean, Christians can do physics, but we can't shape physics <laughs> to our own theology. And uh, this opened up Christians the possibility that we could do this and, uh, and grow in uh, this wisdom. The first time he came into the hall to speak, I was sitting out at the back wall that was thoroughly unwashed, you know. And uh, who was it? his attendant coming in with an incense stick? But Kathleen Riley, who was a Maranol nun working in Japan. And she had been with Yamada for many years and was a, a, a teacher herself. And I was stunned. I remember thinking that the Catholic Church was the only place in the world where the unenlightened preached to the enlightened. <laughs> and uh, I felt I'd start all over again. It was like going to kindergarten, first year kindergarten, uh, beginning all over again. 
I say a married man with children and grandchildren in that he was open to life completely. He was a businessman, a chemist. He was a manager of a hospital. His wife was a medical doctor. Nothing is closed to Zen people. The goal is to grow and fulfill yourself as you wish, not as life or institutions would push you one way or the other. Zen is about your personal liberation and growth. I remember President Kennedy said so many years ago, we can be as big as we want, but it, God's grace does not make a person do what they do not want to do. Zen tries to put you, position you, position us to be what we really want. How wonderful. How wonderful. And that's what sitting is. Sit this way. Sit like a house without a roof. Sit without walls. We all have different paths. Of course they're different. We are all different. Where is home? Well, home is yourself. It's your own, your own humanity. We all have different paths to it. In that sense, no one can teach you. You know yourself, what you are, what you really want. Someone's speaking about uh, education. But sometimes they educate a person to the highest possible degree, short of liberation. Because institutions are not interested in liberating you, really. They want to uh, educate you and train you for a certain slot that you should fulfill in society. And uh, Zen is not about that at all. Try it. Let's try it again. Sit or sit for a few more minutes. Let the breath come in and out of you and pay attention to it. Don't think about it. Don't think of yourself as breathing. Nothing here that you cannot do. Whether you are good in school or not so good in school does not matter. It's a new game. It's a new world. Some people count their breaths. Count each exhalation. Just one to ten. Some prefer to feel the breath as it... Uh, when you breathe out, you can feel it on the tip of your nose. Pay attention to it. My teacher, who is Jewish, asked me to accompany him to Israel for a session. I said, Israel, don't you have anything closer to home? He texts me right back, where is home? The Christian scriptures have a phrase that illuminates this. Someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And he said, birds have their nests. I have no place to lay my head. Can you live like that? Moving is very hard for us. How many things keep us in a static position? 
So Buddhists have an eightfold path. The most important, however, is right speaking. They say if we control our tongue, we will be perfect. Right speaking is not speaking at all, or simply telling the truth. Not excusing ourselves. Again, this has resonance in the Christian scriptures. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else is from the evil one. Hearing, seeing, feeling, and learning do not give us the ultimate reality. Mountains and rivers are not what we see in the mirror. The mirror is our mind. Our senses, seeing and hearing and so on, do not give us the truth about nature. They only tell us what they are able to tell us. We see only what we're able to see, hear what we're able to hear, and we shape the world that way. What the world really is, we is hidden from us, at least hidden from our senses. The world is far vaster than our senses told us. We only know what we are capable of knowing. It's like a tautology, we're saying the same thing. We only know what we can know, what we're capable of knowing. The world is not just what we see. When I was a young teacher, I uh, ran into a person who was simply too much for me. I often wish I could see her again, you know. She said, how do you feel now as a priest? When you realize that God you have been praying to all these years is your very self. Oh, I said something or other that inconsequential, missed the point. It was a very good question. Everybody laughed in the hall, you know. I remember it very well. The God we pray to is of our own construction. It said if the horses had a God, the God would look like a horse. We have created a God in our human image. We like to think that God is loving and merciful. So we say that God is loving and merciful. God is more than that. So we should not judge our neighbor because we only know that person really tangentially, just as we're capable of it. Like we know a bird passing in the sky, you know. Don't judge your neighbor. Don't judge yourself. You don't know yourself, really. What you know is only what you're capable of knowing, which is not much. Don't judge God. I read a number of people, especially even rabbis, lost their faith because of Auschwitz. They could not admit that God could allow such a horrible thing to happen. We don't know. 
The Jewish scriptures say, who knows the mind of God? <laughs> so how good Zen is? It just reminds us of what we should know. We create the world that we live in. Wallace Stevens, a poet, says, we live in the world that we have surmised, created. I loved it when uh, one woman said about her husband, he continually surprises me. I thought, what a happy marriage. <laughs> we fall into a rut of thinking we know people, and uh, actually we, we don't, much less uh, judge other people, you know. I found out it was wonderful, you know, when we were, I was studying uh, to be a therapist, and uh, the great British uh, psychoanalyst, uh, Winnicott, had that wonderful teaching, you should try to create for people a facilitating environment, a facilitating environment, so that they can be themselves. We're not pushing some dogma on people. And we just keep listening and listening. And that's why it takes time. But it's important that they be comfortable and free to say what they really think and feel. Zen is very close to this uh, ideal. Obedience is the least of the virtues. The one who painted this Amy Yi has one of those bright Russell Terrier dogs. And she tells me the dog is too intelligent to be obedient. <laughs> Obedience is a virtue. There's a time when we have to have it, but the least of the virtues. What really is the earth, mountains, and rivers is not what we see in the mirror, not what we perceive. Any comments on this? Agreement, disagreement? Do you see where Zen is moving? Where we should be moving when we sit? Why do we have instructions to open our eyes? It's a very good question. Wasn't there a song about that uh, some years ago? How many times must a man look up before he sees the sky? Sometimes we need help to uh, see what is right in front of us because we think we see reality as it is. And it's just a human projection onto the vast chaotic fire that is the world, that is the Earth. Everything is changing nanosecond by nanosecond. Every cell in our body is changing and in everybody else's body. And in all creation, things are constantly changing. A monk once asked a Zen teacher, what is the fundamental principle of Zen? And he said, moving, moving. And the student said, well, when you are moving, then what? He said, well, when you're moving, you don't need a fundamental principle. <laughs> moving. Why is that so hard for us? This is huge. This is really what Zen is about. 
What we see is what we're capable of seeing, no matter where we go, every time we open our eyes, here, there. It's ourselves that we see. What ourselves have created. Even the facts we call facts are perceived differently. You can see that this is upsetting to those people who value order and, and discipline and everybody following in the footsteps of the one in front of them. My teacher said we should have a, not a, an order but a system of disorder. A system of disorder, a life of disorder, of dis-ease. The fundamental principle of Zen is, one of the fundamental principles is moving, moving. Silence, words, action, and stillness are all Zen. Zen is not one way of living. Zen it should be your way of living, my way of living. To do that, we have to pay attention. That's why there's the silence sitting and the effort to pay attention and to put an end to this repetitious nonsense in the mind that goes on and on. This is the lotus blooming in muddy waters. So there is no definition of Zen besides movement and being one with it so that we can grow and uh, develop talents, interests, and see more clearly that our senses deceive us. There's payoff in this. It makes it possible to live together like traffic lights, you know. <laughs> but deeper than that, it's disorder. Come and go without a trace. This is an interesting Zen teaching. It's very close to the idea of creation in Semitic religions. But God does not simply create the world and let it go, but constantly recreates it. If God did not constantly recreate the world, it would lapse into the nothingness that it came from. There is no movement in the world. The Zen view is that the world simply disappears and is recreated nanosecond by nanosecond. In this sense, there is no connection. Between one thing and the other. The past is gone forever. The Jewish scriptures say, your sins will be taken away from you as far as the east is from the west. The Buddhists would say, they are gone, out of existence. That means we are not tied to the past. Our sins are forgiven, they don't exist anymore. It's not that what was scarlet has become white. That world is gone. A new world is coming into being moment by moment, constantly. 
This is very close, as I understand it, from reading as a layman of uh, you know quantum physics. It's amazing that Zen hit on this way of thinking centuries before there was any scientific method to help them. Where are we in a world like that that is constantly being created and disappearing? What is our true nature in a world like What is human nature in that? This is a Japanese novelist put it this way. What is your true nature, snowman? Put together by circumstances. Made up of the elements of the earth without any inner core. Dissolving totally back into the earth. Will the snowman go to heaven? Sin is not denying anything that religion says. It just says, well, we don't experience that. You know, belief comes from a different part of the human psyche, just looking at the world. That is why they say there is no self, really. What is the self of a snowman? Where does he go when he melts? Does he come back again next year? And it's the sitting silently and looking at the world and trying to free ourselves from repetition from ideas that others have given us that then liberates us. All right, now I'd like to ask you, just please stand up. Zen is not sitting, Zen is standing. So Zen is where you are. Stand tall. Push the ceiling up the top of your head. One student long ago said to his teacher that he was, uh, he was bound by his past deeds. They were so bad that he can't forget them. And the teacher asked him, well, go out and bring them in for me. Let me see. The story goes, the student said, I've searched and searched, and I can't find them. Oh, there I've unbound you. W.S. Merwin, the wonderful poet, is once poet laureate of the United States. He gives the example of Monday. Every time Monday comes, it seems, he's never been here before. It's brand new full of new possibilities. That's true for Tuesday also, <laughs> or Wednesday, or any moment, any moment. Now, one of the best ways to meditate is out loud, out loud. As you breathe out, breathe out this syllable which has no meaning, it's just move. And become that, just the sound, just the sound. Not whether this seems to make sense or doesn't seem to make sense. Forget that stuff. It's just, let's do it together.
come in and out individually. They don't do it, you know, everyone at the same time. Some people have a longer breath than others. This practice is the high road to what the Buddhists call enlightenment because when you are one with this mood, you're not thinking pro or con, up or down, right or wrong. You are just one with this sound. You can do it quietly by yourself or you can do it in a group and shout it out. Let's try it again for a few minutes. Japanese teachers who only teach through Mu. They cut off all questions. Well, I don't see why this, I don't see why that's it. Stop it. Stop it. Just Mu. And when you go in to see the teacher, show me Mu. Show me. I like to think that uh, Zen is like a, a last stop practice. 
Irish people try everything else. You find anything any better, really, do that. Do that. This has to be a certain desperation when you come to Zen, otherwise you wouldn't put up with it. I don't want to hear another pious word in my life. I've heard them all. I don't want to hear another sermon. It's over. <laughs> this uh, New York Jew said he's walking down the street and the rabbi, rabbi came up to him and said, uh, you a Jew? He said, yeah. Come with me, we need the tenth person for a minion. You know, you need ten Jews to pray together. I said to the rabbi, it's over, rabbi. It's over. <laughs> Come with me. <coughs> so I went. <laughs> Being a Jew went out finally, you know. You're a Jew, aren't you? Stop the nonsense, come with me. <laughs> if something really satisfies you, you know, do it, do that. Then it's a question of uh, something has to be over. It's not about disbelief or disbelief, it can be that. It can be, I need a new song. I need a new breath of fresh air. And when you want that badly enough, then, then you go to Zen. All right, please sit down. And again, find that spot where you're comfortable. Take a few minutes to squirm around and settle. I want to read just a few sentences to you. Uh, it explains how I got where I am as a, uh, a Jesuit priest, a Catholic priest. Part of it was, uh, I, feel, I don't want to hear another pious word. <laughs> as Jesuits, we are sent into a world of, that is characterized by religious pluralism. We have a responsibility to promote interreligious dialogue. In other words, we cannot just be Catholic all by ourselves. In a world of uh, pluralism and diversity, we have to meet that and understand that and appreciate the things that uh, people believe and the things that they suffer. This opens our eyes to the incomprehensible mystery of God. God is not caught in any one religious expression. So Jesuits are sent out specially to excel in interreligious dialogue, respect for the other, knowing the other, certainly never putting the other down. We are sent to develop the unifying and liberating potential of all religions thus showing the, re the relevance of religion for human well-being and for world peace. We need to relate positively to believers of other religions because they are our neighbors. Indeed, to be religious today is to be interreligious. 
in the sense that a positive relationship with believers of other faiths is a requirement for faith in this world of religious pluralism. So we are to meet one another uh, with the spirit of, uh, of uh, neighborliness, of openness. The Tibetan monks and greet visitors with the wonderful phrase, what noble tradition do you belong? How can you help us, in other words? How can you teach us something new? And uh, so that's what interreligious dialogue is. And uh, so, as Zen teaches, we never ask what a person's religion is. It doesn't pertain. Do the work. Do the breathing. Be faithful to it. Be faithful to your practice. That's the question teachers ask us. What is your practice? How is your practice going? An individual might work it out according to their own faith. But that's not because of Zen. Zen is work at practice, keep at it, do it. One Jewish student said to me, you'll never know what it means to be told that faith is not an issue, that anyone of any faith can, can come and be part of it. Dialogue reaches us out to the mystery of God active in others. Dialogue makes us sensitive to others, opens us up to how God is alive in other people very different from ourselves. Interreligious dialogue can help us discover the deeper dimensions of our own Christian faith, not just understand others, but finally understand our own faith. Sometimes it's very close to us, sometimes it's not. I remember speaking to a group of Zen teachers once and asked them, you know, is this bread the body of Christ or is it not? If not, what else could it possibly be in the great unity of all things? This wine, is this wine the blood of Christ or is it not? If not, what else could it possibly be? On Zen terms alone, because of the unity, insight into the unity of everything. When you touch your neighbor, you touch Christ. Not a friend of Christ, a relative of Christ, Christ himself, but the Ipsi Christus, Christ himself. This world is Christ itself. For the Christian. Buddhists would see it from a different, different vocabulary, different perspective. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's wonderful to be challenged deeply. It's painful, but it's wonderful. <laughs> Come and go without a trace. When you're gone, you're gone from Buddhism. Utterly gone.
Sometimes the teaching seems contradictory. The fundamental teaching of Buddhism is moving. But moving presupposes continuity, going from A to B. This teaching is, uh, is clearer. There is no movement, because at each moment the world is created anew. There is nothing to move, and there is no A or B either. I subscribe to a Scientific American. It's the extent of my scientific knowledge. But I read amazing things there that are very close to what the Buddhists are saying. All right, let's sit for a few minutes. It's the sitting that keeps us from being just another philosophy. It's the sitting that brings us to a different place. When we sit well, Mu will appear. The world will be altered. But Zen is not primarily about changing the mind. It's about opening the heart. It should be impossible to imagine a Zen practitioner who is stingy, for example, or unforgiving. Say, what's all this sitting? What, what, did, what does it mean? if it doesn't break the heart open. Of course, this is where Zen veers into a type of religion. Accept what the moment brings to you. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't accept what the moment brings to you, it sounds like psychosis, you know, I mean, I to accept this moment. There's a chant that says, when it's time to live, I choose to live. When it's time to die, I choose to die. I accept what the moment brings. Well, what a difference that should make religiously in our prayer life, you know. Stop them begging like for this and that, or complaining about this and that, or trying to change reality so it doesn't rain on our parade, you know, all that. St. Paul says a spirit of strength was given to us. The only tradition in Zen that is unchanging is this. Do the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Everything else is negotiable. Who decides that? You do. It's your life. Your life. I remember Glassman Roshi. He was a uh, mathematician working for Douglas Aircraft out in California, and he ran into Mayazumi Roshi. And he was a brilliant student. Mayazumi Roshi invited him to become a teacher himself. And he said, I it took me a while to accept it. 
my life. He finally did. He's a great teacher. Accept what the moment brings to you. Don't try to change it or manipulate it. Work with it. When it's time to live, I choose to live. When it's time to die, I choose to die. I don't just accept it unwillingly. Now, Zen, therefore, is different in each one of you. It's different in each one. There is no one that we strive to do or achieve. We are all different. Each one will have its own character. You should have your own way of doing it, your own character, your own unique way. Now, this is true with regard, say, to a national character. It's ridiculous for, say, America to imitate Japan. Of all people, the Japanese are an imitable one. We just look foolish. Some visitors to Japan think they put on a kimono when they're really au courant, you know. I mean, the Japanese laugh at them, you know. The Chinese laugh at the Americans who, in order to find their own character and personality, take Japanese. They say, good Lord, that's silly. So every one is different, and every, every uh, national characteristic should be different. It's not wise. England should imitate no one. Be England. Would you imitate the French? I mean, what, it's, it's silly. You know, who, who would? It's a respect for the other completely, but true to your own self and to your own collective community ways of doing things. All this is a facilitating environment, an environment that makes you happy, that makes you yourselves. And realizing you go without a trace, you go without a trace, the futility of imitating others. For Zen, there is no doctrine and there is no faith. There is just responding appropriately to the appropriate moment. I think that's pretty wonderful. Transformation happens silently beyond our consciousness. We can't force it. Transformation happens silently and beyond our will. As we grow and mature as human beings, you know, we don't will this thing. It, it, it should go. We don't know how it goes. Suddenly the world is seen differently. Experience can change us utterly. I had an interesting experience just watching in a plane. There were two sisters sitting, uh, two young girls. One was 15 and one was 10. And uh, they were like different, different worlds entirely. You know, the things they read, the things they said, the observations I heard them make, you know. In a few years, the young one would catch up. But at that moment, they were different. The young one still hadn't been been touched by this transformation into adulthood. It will happen. So too with insight. We can't force it. We can't direct it. It comes to us. Heaven and earth are of the same root. 
That helps us, I think, to have another way of looking at incarnation. Heaven and earth are really the same root. A Buddhist would say, yes, Christ is heaven and earth at the same time, the same root, distinct in its own uniqueness. But truly human, true humanity and God are not separate. Again, as Jesus said, you know, when you touch another person, you touch me. When you give them a drink of water, you give it to me, not to my friend, to Christ himself. Therefore, ipsi Christus, true Christ, is relational with the whole world. We see only a small part of it. We experience only a small part of it. The risen Christ is the entire universe slowly being brought together. The Buddhists wouldn't say so much, but they would say this, finally heaven and earth are the same root. There are not two things, finally. There is one reality with different dimensions. Dualism seems to be the, the great enemy in all this, that we're really separate from another, you know. You know, no connection, no connection. The reality seems to be quite different. To be one with Christ means to be one with the whole world. No private Christ in that sense. And yet we see Christ in our own uniqueness. No one else sees it the way we do. Both are operating at the same time. Our whole waking life is a dream. Sometimes this is so clear, sometimes it isn't, you know. It comes in and out. This conversation, this meeting we're having right now, you and I, it's a dream in the same sense as the dreams we have at night. Neither of us are seeing reality as it truly is. We could not possibly do it. We don't have the, the human mind cannot grasp the, uh, the reality of the the sun, for example, visible light from the sun is only a fraction of 1% to 2% of all the energy that it throws off. But that 1% and 2% binds us to all the other possibilities, all the other energies of the earth that we cannot see because it blinds us to it. In the Zen retreat of several days, the last day, in the last day there is no teaching you are left to yourselves to see what you will make of this. To what will you put your shoulder? This new insight you in any way, perhaps not. But perhaps somewhat, it is a teaching of liberation, compassion, intelligence, Nothing to be afraid of.
expressed by a person of any faith or no faith. Isn't it terrible when so-called wise men fight with one another? Isn't it, uh, isn't it sad? No, there's truth in every, every statement. It's not that you do move. It is just move. It is just when it is only move, that means the self is, has been superseded or blocked out. You know, it has no other meaning. There is no meaning to it. Uh, it's just one way of stopping the, the, uh, the mind. Someone said, mind is a cage of wild birds. I think that's exactly right. It's a cage of wild birds all banging at the cage, trying to get out or trying to be heard, you know, and uh, uh, this is what we're dealing with. And Mu is an effective way of trying to stop that incessant chatter and uh, need and so on. Uh, other than that, no, no, no meaning. That's the meaning. You say the meaning is simply Mu. Just that. Jesuits were founded not to stay at home, but to be on the road. And uh, um, there's always a movement in the society toward piety. Uh, we should pray more. We should chant the hours of the office together. It, it always comes up, you know. And uh, the society has always stopped it. That's not our way, you know. We. Uh, Try to be free to respond to need wherever it is. You know, Father Nadal was set up as sort of the secretary to Saint Ignatius. He said, "Our home is the road." Now it hasn't worked out that way because Jesuits got involved in running schools. And when you run a school, you have to be there. You know, eight o'clock, a thousand kids come over the wall, and you've got to deal with it. But that, Jesuits do that, but that wasn't our ideal. Our ideal was to be able to be free to move and go, and uh, go where needed and then leave. You know, there's lots of need. Well, the exercises were to set up, so to help a person make a life decision. They weren't originally to be done every year repetitiously, you know, I mean, I, uh, Rachel Donders was a Dutch woman who was head of the International Grail some years ago. And she used to tease me and said, must I choose again? <laughs> she had a whole life was of service and a wonderful person. And the spiritual exercises were geared to bring a person to a decision of what they wanted to do with life. But unfortunately, it's been co-opted as a way of prayer or something like that, which it really isn't. Just the Zen itself is not a theory. It's supposed to be a way of life, you know, way of life. Yes. Yeah, so Zen and Zen teachers have always been, I mean, Jesuits and Zen people have always been close. We've had our fights, but we've worked it out. We use the word, unfortunately, Zen Buddhism. Buddhism means the whole Buddhist world, I mean, like with hundreds of different Buddhist denominations, and they all believe different things, and sometimes they believe fantastic things, you know. 
Zen, many people say, is not Buddhism at all. Of course, Zen says, oh, of course we're Buddhists. I mean, Buddhism is the only game in town. Of course, they said part of it, you know. And they are. They have the vocabulary and the symbols and all that. But really, they have, they are moved away from, it was real reformation of Buddhism. And uh, they stopped talking about an afterlife completely, you know. Do it now. Do it now. This is the afterlife, you know, as far as we know. We have a few more minutes. Then always ends on time. <laughs> yes, sir. What is an individual in your sense? Pardon? What is an individual? Uh, in the Zen perspective, an individual is like the snowman. It's utterly uh, of the conditions of nature. And uh, at death, it dissolves back into the world. It, it's, uh, um, we are holy of the earth. And uh, now you have an authentic religious belief that there is another dimension to the universe entirely that we can't see, you know, and can't imagine. As St. Paul said, I have not seen nor ever heard nor has it entered into the mind of man to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. And I believe that. I live as a, uh, a Christian hope. But I admire the courage and the insight of the Zen people. And I, uh, uh, they keep me from being uh, silly in my belief or sentimental, you know. They just point to the reality right here. And as I say, it squares with, uh, with what we know of quantum physics, you know, the uh, indeterminacy, the contingency of the world. When conditions are right, lightning strikes. You know, when conditions are right, humanity came, evolved. That's why life is so precious, they say. During the mission, you have now this opportunity to see more clearly, to live more fully. Take it. Take it. They don't want to hear what religion you come from or your denomination, you know. Or your, that, they try to get you alive and, and live it and, uh, and, and more compassionately, more intelligently. Their vision of a, the individual as a snowman. You see something else, they would say? Tell us how you see it. You know. I remember someone asked, uh, he, he was, maybe must have been a child, uh, what does God do with the leaves that fall from the trees? Saul said, well, God takes them to heaven to use them again next year. He said, well, Zen keeps us from being silly about our view of the world, you know. And then, but they don't interfere with anyone's, you know, an authentic faith if they choose to believe, as I do, in another dimension of life. 
they would say, well, I, I, I hope you're right. But we just don't see it. Yes? Yes, previous slide was saying about, um, you know, our senses. We sort of don't really see, we don't really hear. Right. And so on. So, does reality exist? Ah. <laughs> Wonderful question. How does it exist? It, it, it exists, it's here. But what is its nature? And, uh, or its purpose? Does it have a creator? Does it have a destiny? Does it have meaning? I mean, it, it, it exists in the sense, yes, you can bang your head against a, a wall that hurts itself. We, we exist, pain exists, and so on. But what is the nature of the individual? Does it have an eternal destiny, or is it just this nanosecond now, one after the other, that's all there is? Pain exists. Pain exists. How real is it? Someone said that we have to be careful not to turn pain into suffering. Don't make a career out of it, it just exists and deal with it. Deal with it now, don't make it a profession that, you know, suffering, go on. But that would be almost a pastoral approach to a, a Buddhist issue, you know, and I wanted to step back more or less from all other approaches just to see what they say, you know, that insight of a unity in, that admits differences. Like clouds, fundamentally exactly the same thing, and yet there are distinctions, you know, but fundamentally the same. What is our destiny? Ah, snowman. I find it thrilling, honestly, my last words. I, I prefer, you know, as a Jesuit priest, to work with Buddhists and then to argue religious questions, say, on, on the nature of how many sacraments are there, you know, I said, oh. <laughs> no. I said, enough already. I mean, you know, to work with, they say, the Indian patriarchs, the Chinese patriarchs, the what they think, the way they practice, the passion that they bring to life. I find it wonderful, a wonderful way to go with my life, you know. I, Arguing about the role of the Pope, for example, is ah, not one more word about it, you know. That's what I feel, you know. Uh, Zen was liberating for me, you know, in that sense. In that sense. Hey, it's time. Let's eat. Let's eat and drink. Thank you so much. You can hear more talks and conversations in the media section on our website, wccm.org, or in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. For WCCM, I am Elba Rodriguez.